Good morning. Welcome to the Conway Hall Ethical Society. We're going to have one of our usual lectures in a moment. The lecturer has just told me that he hopes his fiery talk will not cause a fire, but if there is a fire, the exits are over there and on Red Line Square. I have to say that. And please turn off mobile phones, is the other message. Well, today's lecture by Alex Gabriel will is entitled Godless and Broke, Making Secular Groups Less Middle Class. Hands up the middle class. No Don't worry, I'll check. Well, I'm sure Alex has his own way of finding you out. Too ashamed to admit it here. Um, now, Alex is the author of Godlessness in Theory, a blog on religion and how to leave it. <coughs> Popular rhetoric and political dissent. Secular, nerd, I don't like that word, nerd. Well, I do, so carry <laughs> on. You must be a nerd then. Um, and LGBT culture sexuality and gender, or whatever comes to mind. So we will be in for a quite an interesting address here on the subject of diversity in secular communities. Uh, Alex's writing appears in Alternet, this is on the web, the Rationalist Association, and you can follow his work or find him on Twitter at Alex Gabriel. So, Alex, there you go. Hi, thank you. Do you want to stand up? Yeah. Yes. Sorry, um, you can probably tell from where I look, I'm not really used to giving lectures. Uh, so I might just take a minute to sort of set myself up here. Very interesting having a podium. There's wonders of my ego. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. Before I say anything else, uh, if there's anybody in here who um, is on Twitter or has a smartphone or anything like that, um, if you want to send me a tweet um, during this talk, please do. That's my handle there. Uh, so, where are we? Okay, the first thing that I want to say, uh, I know it's cliche, but thank you so, so much for inviting me and having me here and coming to listen. Um, every speaker says that, but I think that I have probably three good reasons. Um, you'll find out in the course of this talk that until I was in the middle of my teens, um, I was quite devoutly religious, actually. That's the kind of upbringing I had. And, um, excuse me, I'm too tall for this microphone. Um, there was a period, I have to admit, where I really hoped that when I grew up, I might join the priesthood. Well, here I am. It didn't really work, did it? Um, but it's nice to think that having come out on a Every Sunday morning with audience of atheists is probably the closest to a sermon I'll ever get. Thank you. That's one dream just about realised. Um, secondly, I want to thank you for engaging with a topic that, if not divisive, certainly not inflammatory, I'd hope, it might be somewhat controversial. Um, I was just talking to Norman a few minutes ago, actually, about the Sunday assembly we operate here every couple of weeks and kind of the newest wave of secular activities. Um, it's interesting to watch the way that atheism has ebbs and flow that come every few years, new passions, new approaches. Um, 
About 10 years ago, we had the dawn of the new atheist era, which Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, all those people. Um, one of the major critiques of that um, brand of secularism is that as practiced, it tends to be somewhat socially exclusive. Um, tends to be led by um, men, somewhat older men, um, academics, people who are in various ways relatively privileged and has not quite managed to spread its social wings to the corners of society that it has the potential to. Um, there's been a wave of things like feminist criticism and things like that, and discussions about the ways that we might broaden secularism and bring more people into it. Um, many of those discussions, often led by writers and commenters like me, have tended to draw a great deal of pushback. Um, there are actually whole websites and online communities just devoted to harassing people like me when we talk about ways to change secularism uh, and make it more inclusive, more welcoming, and more popular, in a word. Um, I just thought that, in case you weren't sure about the quality of my writing, I'd read you a quotation about me from one of my fans. Uh, this is from a website that is entirely set up to harass writers like me. Alex Gabriel has to be the most painfully bad writer since the invention of cuneiform. I'd rather perform an anesthesialist appendectomy on myself using a sharp rock while standing on my head with a killer hangover while scorpions sting at my nads and syphilitic hippo sodomizes me, <laughs> like so, and read one of his interminable bowel movements. Uh, so if you want to read any of my posts, you know the name of my book. I'm really not that bad, but you know. Um, so thank you for engaging with things which may be a bit uh, contentious. And finally, I have to say that I'm really very pleased to be speaking about this here in Conway Hall. Um, wow, water needed. Um, I think this building is probably the single most important um, Freethought Hall in Europe, and certainly it was uh, the hub of European Freethought in the 19th century. We have the NSS in this building, uh, we have the RA in this building, all the great um, organisations. Um, and many of the atheist ghosts that I can feel moving around me today were people who were really very deeply class conscious. I'm thinking here of Charles Bradlaugh, um, George William Foote, those kinds of people. Um, a lot of them were either cooperators or leftists or Ammonites or some kind of background like that. Does anybody here know the name Harry Law? Yes, oh, I'm glad. Uh, for those who don't, um, one of the atheist superstars of Victorian England, I think, if there was such a thing, um, did a lot of public speaking um, and was generally a bit of a hellraiser or a no hellraiser, um, as the case might have been, um, was also very much an angry feminist woman, very much a socialist, uh, was a personal friend of Karl Marx. Some people say an influence on the way that he wrote. Um, Marx's daughter um, married Edward Avery, who was another of the great so there was a kind of a wave of class conscious thought in that strand of secularism that I think has been lost. Um, and I would like to see it restored um, because I think that a community like ours and a philosophy like ours has the potential to reach further than it has um, as it actually plays out. It's also ironic we persuade ourselves that these tensions and controversies that I've been talking about are novelties. Actually, they're very, very old. There have been class conscious people and radical people in secularism for a very long time. If there's perhaps one place other than Conway Hall that might challenge an attack as the hub of European free thought, it might be the city of Berlin, um, 
which is where I live today. Um, I actually flew in yesterday. Thank you for booking my flights. So, um, of course, I can perhaps feel that some of you might be wondering, and the voice as well, that doesn't really help, why as a jet-setting atheist who is flown between countries to give public speeches, I'm really entitled to talk about being working class. Uh, I'm a bit glamorous of that. You'd be forgiven for assuming that. But I think it's worth mentioning that the reason I live in Berlin today is that it's the only place I know where one can pay the bills on a writer's wage, or at least on my writer's wage. Um, I think I should also probably mention, this is one of the things I've written about, that um, I was homeless before I was a year old. Um, my mum and I, who was a single mum for years afterwards, um, were took out and spent a great deal of time, I think it was close to two years before um, we were housed. Um, so I am perhaps aware of the subject I'm speaking of more than most people. Um, and occasionally have the impression that atheism can be a bit rich in a word. Uh, hmm. right, again, just if you needed a reminder of that. You can see this is from uh, I think 1992. That's me on the right, looking um, wonderful. And you can see my mum. That's just after we were housed. Um, perhaps you can make out the rather grim-looking council house fence down at the bottom. What you're seeing there is our back garden, but it wasn't a back garden when we moved in, it was a rubbish tip. Um, what you can see on the far right there is just rubbish that the council had piled onto the house that they moved us into. Um, that being said, uh, very, very happy time of my life. Sorry, what, what is this? This is a picture of you. Yeah, that was me. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, which you can't even really tell, but. Uh, you can actually see paving slabs underneath the snow there, which had to be cleared. It took months and months, um, perhaps close to a year before we could even grow grass. Um, but just to give you a kind of suggestion of the kind of life that I had there. Um, this year, my projected income is something like £4,000, just to kind of contextualise my position. Um, so I, I did promise that I would check that you were all very middle class. Um, I'm going to do that now. Just by way of a, don't worry, it's not too intrusive. Um, no rubber gloves. Uh, just by a quick sort of show of hands, um, put your hand up and keep it up if you earn more than, say, £30,000, or you did earn it before you retired. That's reassuring. Uh, <laughs> just a couple. Oh, that is so courageous. Well done. Um, those who are or were stably employed. Certainly, sure. Those who are today or were previously stably employed before retirement, but you weren't a caregiver. Oh, nice, nice of you. So, to be clear about that question, uh, if you weren't somebody who lived hands around, for example, I'm a freelance writer, so I don't have the kind of income that a lot of people have. Um, put your hand up if you can't remember worrying recently about being able to pay the rent, or about the concept of eviction, maybe. Yeah? Most of you again. If you have a degree, if you went to a private school, yeah. don't be shy. I'm only in Switzerland. I'm sorry? In Switzerland, not in. I can forgive that. <laughs> okay. People who own a car, people who own a house. Hmm. Uh, 
uh, more abstract. People who, if it happened to them now, or if it had happened in the last five years, would have been able to go to the courts, or would have been able to talk to a solicitor without worrying about being bankrupt. Okay, a few of you. So, feels like this is a reasonably comfortable room financially, um, certainly in terms of the kind of things that I tend to talk about. Um, quick other show of hands before moving on. Um, presumably most people here are from the Conway Hall Society. From the Conway Hall Ethical Society or members of that? Well, not members, I'm currently a member. Yeah, that works. Uh, members of the BHA, the NSS, any of those big secular, okay, yeah. Um, I don't suppose we have any staff from those groups. Oh, which one? Okay, don't worry, I'm not criticising you too much tonight. Um, might have one or two people here from a student group. I'm seeing Daniel over there, put up your hand. Put up your hand, Daniel, who's going to make this student group. We do exist. Um, so a lot of the things I'm going to say tonight are discussions about how those sorts of groups might want to behave or how they might want to change their operations if they want to include more poorer people. Um, so I just wanted to be clear that no one in the room is going to come and punch me. Um, most of this talk will also be about hands-on actions that can be taken, right? things that are very much practical issues of organisation. Um, there's a lot of discussion among groups like the Sunday Assembly, among groups like the NSS about how to reach more women, how to reach more ethnic minorities, how to broaden membership in that kind of sense. And for a lot of those issues, um, the question is one of what might be called messaging, right? Uh, a question of not making sexist jokes when you all go to the bar afterwards, things like that. Um, when it comes to including people who are broke or who are working class or hard up, it's often much more a question of taking action, right? It's often a question of changing the way that your organisation is constructed. Um, I also want to say that, for the most part, I'm trying to make this a very positive presentation. Um, toward the beginning, I do want to be a little bit critical, though, um, and I'm going to talk about messaging very briefly. Um, so I have a quick series of quotes. Um, I wonder if anybody can tell me who said them. Okay. So we're all aware, I would assume, of New College of Humanities. It's A.C. Grayling's university that we started a couple years ago. has annual fees of £18,000. Um, there was quite a lot of controversy. And here's a statement. Public schools charge £30,000 a year. American universities charge £50,000 a year. Then the tuition fee of £18,000 starts to look reasonable. Anyone heard that? Anyone who said it? Um, implying, I think perhaps unfairly, that public schools and huge American universities for the rich are a good model for which to build a university um, On a similar subject, £18,000 is not a great deal when you compare it with the sorts of things that people spend their money on, that rich people spend their money on anyway. Anyone heard that? No, you said it? That was Richard Dawkins when he was challenged over his support for the project. <coughs> Finally, uh, people aware of Theo van Gogh, he was a filmmaker, uh, Dutch a few years ago, um, was murdered by Islamists in the process of making a film, um, a really notorious
notoriously racist and horrible film, incidentally, but uh, was stabbed in the street and shot and things like that. This is a quotation about him. The man who murdered Theo van Gogh, who was on welfare, had the time to plot a murder, which in the United States he would not. He would be busy trying to feed himself and find a roof over his head. Well, thank goodness for that, the solution to Islamism, homelessness. Um, that is from, if anybody knows her, I am Percy Lee, who is seen as one of the major female atheists around the world. Um, I think we need to think about these kinds of statements a little bit more carefully about what they imply. For example, the idea that when humanists and secularists start universities, they considered the idea that rich people are the people they should target. I think we need to rethink the idea that we can talk about things like homelessness and welfare um, in a way which is so really very exploitative. Um, I, I also think that uh, there are broader questions of tone. There are a lot of narratives in atheist discussions that one hears a lot. Um, for example, when we hear religions or religious texts like the Bible being referred to as the product of illiterate goat herders, and stressing illiterates, right, as if a culture that doesn't read or write can't produce something meaningful. Um, I think there are a lot of people in places like American inner cities where rates of literacy are very low, could very easily be turned off by that kind of thing. The fact that you can't read or write does not indicate your intelligence. It doesn't indicate your ability to ascertain that there isn't a god. It indicates your ability not to write. I think we need to re-examine the idea of Christian fundamentalists, that stereotype that we have of farmers in the US Deep South. Talk a lot like this, talk about my pastor and what he says, as if not very educated. Right? The reality is that if you go to the Deep South, the people who are the most powerful religious figures are millionaires who run mega churches and preach prosperity gospel teachings which fleece the poor. Right? Um, and I think we need to think perhaps differently about how some of our figureheads, Dawkins is one, has a habit of referring to educated people or the educated. Education is a commodity, it's costly. It's more costly now in the UK than it has been for, well, within memory, actually. 9,000 pounds a year, 36,000 pounds for a degree. Um, access to that should not be something we use to determine whether somebody should be part of our movement or not. Um, and sometimes that is the effect of this rhetoric, I think. I think a lot of people find that off um, And then there are broader questions. There are things like local groups, um, not Conway Hall, of course, but local humanist groups um, around the country. I used to live in Oxford, I went to university there, um, worked with a lot of local humanists. When you're planning an event, you have questions like, where are we gonna host this? Can we find an auditorium? Can we find a hall? And then the question comes up, should we look at local schools? Well, if you look at a private school, if that's where you have your big atheist event, that's gonna be quite an off-putting environment to a lot of people who are broke, uh, who grew up broke, as I did. Um, so these are, I think, things that we ought to be more aware of um, when it comes to outreach. The rest of this talk um, will be a series of very much more um, practical suggestions. Um, the first of which is this. Um, I'm talking really here to things like skeptics in the pub groups, if anybody is aware of those, or to humanist groups, or to things like Sunday assemblies that are set up now. When you're holding events, and you're holding them on a regular basis, hold them in the less nice parts of town as well, right? Don't just hold them in the glamorous, pretty, safe bit of town, right? I don't know London particularly well, but if you're in Oxford, hold your events in 
in, for example, not just in Jericho, but in St. Kevin's. If you're in Berlin, hold your events in Kreuzberg as well as Charlottenburg. I have to indicate at this point my geographical knowledge is very much limited to Oxford and Berlin. I can't really talk about them broadly. Um, but the nice bit of the town, the pleasant bit, the bit that you see on all the brochures, that's usually the richest end. And it's usually the whitest end as well. Right? Uh, a lot of people are going to find that very off-putting. Um, but in a more hands-on sense, um, there are going to be people who need to travel there. Um, who got on the tube to come here? Or came by public transport, kind of? Yeah. Public transport is not something that everybody can afford. Um, when I live in Berlin, for example, um, when I go back, the S-Bahn, the equivalent of the tube over there, um, is something that I can afford to take maybe once or twice a week. Right? If you're a secular group, if you're skeptics in the public, humanists, whoever, and you're expecting that people will make that kind of journey and spend money in order to get there, travel a series of miles to get to your event because it's not near where they live, chances are they're going to spend that money on something else. Um, so I think it's probably a good idea that we start holding things like meetings, get-togethers, talks like this one and so on, um, in areas which are not quite so middle class. Right? I think it's important to remember that in areas which tend to house people who are um, on the margins in poverty and places like that, <coughs> the kind of venues where talks like this happen, community centres, places like that, are always very central, they're always near to people's houses, and they're very visible. Um, when you're uptown, um, or even downtown, when you're meeting in a kind of glamorous um, bar or whatever, firstly, people aren't going to be able to get there much of the time. Secondly, once they are there, it's going to be costly. And, well, thirdly, um, it's just off-putting being in that environment for many people. Um, that can mean things like having more security concerns. It can mean things like uh, having less reliable internet access or less nice fancy cocktails for people who like things in bars. But I think if we want to attract people who are um, economically disadvantaged but have an affinity with secularism, we need to step into those shoes and recognise that those need to be our concerns as well. Right? We can't just expect people to come to the most expensive parts of town every week. Um, and then the people who have cars or who are able to travel further are generally the people who are better off. Okay. Secondly, um, I've mentioned the Sunday Assembly. Um, there is a spate of humanist or humanist-related um, secular activities that see themselves as kind of church replacements. Um, places that provide services or music or things like that. Um, Sunday Assembly is one of my friends with the Harvard Humanist Community in America. <coughs> Sorry, I'm losing my voice. Um, the Sunday Assembly actually asked me um, a couple of months back to give them advice about reaching out to um, less well-off members and uh, the one thing that I really emphasised was be a bit more practical. If you're an alternative to church, a secular alternative to church, you need to actually be an alternative, right? Um, these groups tend to have taglines or selling points which are along the lines of celebrate the one life we know we have, or we provide ethical leadership, or we're a community, or come and experience sheer wonder, abstraction, abstraction, abstraction. Um, there are 
things like songs as well, which are a bit less abstract, but they're still essentially aesthetic. Um, if you want to attract poorer people, you need to offer more than just um, abstractions, and you need to offer more than sitting around seeing come by art together. Um, churches actually offer this. Um, if you are somebody who remembers going to church, and the biggest thing you associated with was uh, a feeling of enlightenment or wonder or whatever, the chances are that you were one of the better off people in the church. Um, I remember being four or five, um, up really until my early teens. Um, my mum and I were really quite um, devoutly Christian. We had some beliefs, I think, that I would now call fundamentalist. Um, but the main thing the church meant for all of us was uh, help, actually. Um, it meant babysitting when mum needed something to do that. It needed food when there was nothing in the fridge. It meant second-hand clothes when I needed new clothes. Right? That was the place that we went for practical help. Um, and I think that there's actually something very double-sided in the way that a lot of churches give that help to people. Right? Uh, because at that time, had my mum uh, had any kind of deconversion or had she left her religion, our life would have been very much harder. We wouldn't have had people to bring us furniture. We wouldn't have had people to give us lifts when we needed to go somewhere. All of that practical help would have vanished. And that's the kind of dependency that I think hooks a lot of poor people into churches. And there was an article in, I think, The Guardian um, in January, <coughs> which argued that if you went to a lot of poverty-stricken US inner cities, everybody was really incredibly religious. Well, I think at least part of the reason that very, very poor people um, often have strong ties to churches is that they need them, and it's hard to leave. So I think it, if your aim as a secular group is to replace religion and provide the kind of community the church is providing for a lot of people. Yes, sing the songs. Yes, have the discussion about how wonderful our minds are and that kind of thing. But also provide food, have a soup kitchen, right? Give people clothes when they need them. Give people money when they're about to be evicted by their landlord. These are the kind of things that will make people respect you, right? Because at the moment, there are a lot of those groups which meets twice a month or whatever, sing songs, share inspiring messages, and then don't actually do very much. Right? We need to recognize that um, poverty and social disadvantages is something that religions tend to prey on, right? and tend to ensnare people with. Um, and if we want to break that, if we want to find the poverty-stricken atheists, then we need to care about those issues and help those people um, without all the extra double-sided strings that religious groups tend to um, attach. I think that we also need to do things that churches don't do. Right? Churches will distribute things like clothes, things like food. I wish that rationalist groups would distribute things like condoms, especially opposite the Catholic Church. That would be fun. Um, and I also think that secular groups should support things like, uh, there's an organization in America called Secular Organizations for Sobriety. Um, it's a kind of atheist equivalent to Alcoholics Anonymous without any of the kind of baggage to do with prayer and higher power that comes with that. Um, and also with a more scientifically valid approach to addiction. Um, these are the kind of groups that are often incredibly valuable to atheists who are uh, affected by addiction, who are on the economic margins, who need help. Um, but at the moment can only get it from churches. Right? We need to be giving that help. Um, I don't mean to press that too hard, but I think it needs to be emphasized. On a similar note, groups need to have pressures. 
I know that this is a very unromantic, very direct, very pragmatic um, demand, but groups need to have pressures. Local humanists who meet down at the village, Sunday assemblies, I think actually the one that we does, all of those groups, skeptics in the pub in the evening, in the pub not so much. Um, but there was uh, American Atheists, which is the major um, secular organization over there. Last year had childcare provided at their big conference by the Richard Dawkins Foundation. Um, huge, uh, I'm not sure what the statistics were, but um, that measure was lauded by a great number of people for bringing more women into that event, because often when there isn't childcare, when there isn't somewhere that you can you know, drop the children off before you go into the conference, that means one partner stays home and looks after them. And still that tends to be the woman, right? Um, I think this is also a question of um, economic inclusion as well, because it doesn't just mean that you get both parents there. It means that parents will come to your conference, the humanist group, whatever, who can't afford to pay a child behind them, or can't afford uh, a nursery for the rest of the day. Also speaking as somebody who was uh, raised by a single mum, uh, crushes are just wonderful. Uh, there's a problem that afflicts a lot of single parents where, because there's no other partner, uh, it's very difficult to do anything that earns money. Right? People would say to my mum, hey, why don't you just get a job? Well, she would say, well, no, I, I have a two-year-old, I have to look after. Well, get a childminder. I can't afford a childminder. Well, just get a job. Vicious circle. And the way to break that is to provide childcare for people free that they don't have to pay for. Um, I know that that can sometimes be an ambitious goal, like finding the money that will pay for that kind of service. But that will bring huge numbers more women and huge numbers uh, more poor parents uh, and more hard up parents um, into things like atheist conferences. Um, there is the option for groups like Sunday Assemblies, um, if it's difficult to arrange that, to find members of the congregation who will volunteer and who will run a crash every meeting every other Sunday. There is a risk with that. Anyone thinking what the risk might be? Can you stop volunteering? <laughs> Legally. Not so much that. It's the same thing that happens in churches, right? You find half a dozen people who run the crash, the half a dozen people are the wives of the men. So all the women leave the service every week. Um, if you want to avoid that, you pay a professional, right? Uh, and if you're struggling to find the funds to do that, um, you find 20 people in your congregation who will give a parent to do it. Or you find one person who's very well off. Some of you earn lots of money, so I'm looking at you. Um, conferences simply have to hire professionals. There's not really anything else that you can do. Um, but there are groups out there, the Richard Dawkins Foundation is one of them, there are other charitable groups in the US, um, there are national organisations like the NSS here, that can and I think really should be sponsoring childcare for those kinds of events. Um, they make things like conferences much, much more accessible. Okay. Um, I should mention at this point that a lot of the things I'm going to suggest um, might well involve fundraising. Right? Um, I was talking to Perhaps some of you know there's a podcast called The Pod Delusion, uh, which is sort of the major secular radio show in the UK. Um, I was having this discussion with their host, James O'Malley, and he said, 
Well, a lot of your suggestions seem to involve just throwing money at the problem. And it's true that they do, because when you're talking about appealing to poor people and making things more accessible to them, you have to provide the money that they don't have. And a lot of the things that I'm going to say will actually just involve digging around for funds. Um, there's not much I can say as an alternative to that. But there are ways to find it, and we can be able to do it. Um, when it comes to things like conferences, things like weekly groups, uh, I think this is particularly an issue for major organisations that uh, have kind of huge theatre-filling events. Um, don't charge prohibitive entry fees. Um, I'm actually not of the view that everything has to be kept 100% free all the time. Um, I think most of you probably pay five pounds on the door here. Um, but in fact, I used to run an atheist student group. Uh, we worked with local humanists, um, did a lot of things together. We always wanted absolutely everything to be free, right? Nothing on the door, nothing uh, for a ticket for several events, no membership fee, anything like that. What we found is that while it was very well intentioned, we then didn't have any funds as an organisation. And we couldn't pay for anything that would make things more accessible, like childcare, for, for instance. Um, there is, however, uh, a point at which that has to be limited. Right? Uh, America has a much bigger atheist conference scene than the UK does. Um, some of their conferences, uh, there's one, for example, um, The Amazing Meeting, uh, which is just used as a fundraiser, um, where the ticket price is $800, sort of £500 kind of thing. Um, the World Humanist Congress this year in Oxford costs, I think, £300 for the ticket, plus wherever you're staying, plus travel costs of getting there. Um, for me, if I were to go, that would wipe out about two months of rent for me. Um, and when those kinds of people on those kinds of incomes aren't able to get to conferences, they're not able to hear the great speeches that atheist leaders make, they're not able to find representatives of organisations, make contacts, do all the things that help to um, ensconce people in the same community. Um, student groups, couple of pounds on the door, right? Small amounts, things like that, will generate enough that you can generally um, function well as an organisation. Um, Sunday assemblies, humanist chaplaincies and so on, you pass a place around, you get donations. Weekend conference, 100 pounds. Fine, reason, no objection. When it comes to 300, 400, 500, there's a problem there, and we do need to be aware of it. Um, I don't think that the long-term solution is to hold expensive conferences and find ways after the fact to make it possible for poor people to get there. For example, setting things up and, and starting grants. Um, I think that when we organise things like conferences, one of the first things that we need to have in mind is how is this going to be possible for people who can't afford a huge price, right? Um, I also think that there is a support network out there of people who will help make them accessible. Bloggers like me, for instance, uh, will raise a lot of money on the internet to um, help pay for people's tickets who can't buy them on their own. Um, Organisations that really care about this can do it. Um, QED, for example, a um, conference that happens every year in Manchester, a um, very good example. Um, okay, now I want to talk about what I'm doing now. I'm talking here to local groups, 
I'm talking steering groups, I'm talking to respected public groups. Pay your speakers when they do lectures, things like this, when they do talks. And pay them well. Um, thank you for doing so. Um, this talk will probably cover close to half my event for this month. Um, to clarify, I'm not talking so much specifically about conferences. Conferences are a special case, I think, um, and rather complicated. Um, there's one in the US called Skepticon, which is entirely free, and the only reason that they're able to be free is that everybody who speaks there uh, doesn't demand a fee. Um, so I don't want to go into the specific questions of conference organizing on this too much, but conferences with hundreds of people are the top of the pyramid, right? The people who go and speak there, the kind of people who will be speaking in Oxford this year, the Humanist Congress, are people who've made their names in groups like this, or at Skeptics Pub, or at Sunday Assemblies, or at Humanist groups, or at student groups, right? The smaller venues. And I think in some ways those actually matter more. Um, I have a particular attachment here, I have to say, to student groups, um, because that's my background, or was a couple of years ago. Um, pay your speakers. I'm just going to say this again. Pay them. Um, it's much more commonplace in the US for people who do talks like this to receive a medium-sized fee. Um, the US speaking circuit, the kind of rosters of speakers that you see over there, giving these kinds of discussions, um, it's far more diverse, um, both in terms of things like gender and race, um, but also in professions, right? The people who tend to be the big atheist speakers over here are academics um, and employees of lobby groups, BHA and SS. Um, also scientists to an extent, like people who have very stable incomes who are very professionally um, supported. When it comes to people like me, who are writers, artists, um, activists, um, also to an extent young people. Um, not paying speakers makes that kind of circuit very difficult to break into. Um, I want to explain why. Um, the common thing over here, if you run a student group, um, I think also for things like skeptics and so on, is to pay people's expenses, right? To say, you came on a bus, we'll give you the cost of that. You came on a train, we'll give you 50 pounds to cover that. And to buy dinner or whatever. Um, the idea being that coming and speaking then hasn't cost them anything. Well, actually it has, because there's an opportunity cost, right? The time that I spend giving a talk is the time that I could have spent on something else. Um, I've come back to Britain this weekend. Um, that is a weekend that I could have spent paying the rent. Um, I don't know, is anybody aware Fred Phelps just died? American fundamentalist, got inspired. Yeah, very lucrative article in that, when I get around to writing it. Um, haven't been able to do that this week this. Were this a free gig, were I not getting a fee for giving this talk, that would set me back a week in terms of my ability to pay the money. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, Johnny Scaramanga is a friend of mine who writes a blog for Leaving Fundamentalism. I think he's spoken here before. He did. He has. Oh, you liked him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's divisive. I like him. Um, but was saying to me recently, uh, there comes a point where I just can't do free talks anymore partly because I have to use that time on something else, and it sets me back if we don't. And partly because the kind of activism that I do is expensive, right? Uh, getting hold of the kinds of fundamentalist exam papers that he tends to talk about um, costs him hundreds and hundreds of pounds, right? The activism people like us do is expensive. We have to be supported. 
And we can't do talks like this, we can't get onto the speaker circuit, we can't become recognised or active in secularism without crippling ourselves financially. Um, and that needs to change. Um, okay. uh, and the best speakers will spend kind of two or three days working on the lecture, working on the talk. When you tell me that I need to do that free, you're essentially telling me that I need to take half a week off work. my notes on the keyboard, not to press. Um, if you couldn't take half a week off work yourself, or you wouldn't expect other people to, then you need to pay your speakers much of the time. Um, fundraising for that can be difficult. Um, my feeling is that fees need to start at the lower end of three figures. 100, 120 pounds is where a respectable fee begins, um, I think. It covers the amount of skill that speaking has to take, it covers the amount of time that goes into it, um, it covers expenses. Um, I'm speaking here particularly about student groups, right, that don't have a lot of money, about local groups that are kind of run on a shoestring. Fundraising specifically needs to go into this goal. Um, there are other bigger people, like Conway Hall, for example, who are able to pay more, and for whom that is a realistic goal. But for the ones for whom it isn't, it needs to become an aim. Um, we need to be talking to members, finding relations. We need to be talking to big national groups, BHA, NSS, Richard Dawkins Foundation, to find ways of sponsoring our group. We need to have small fees on the door. Right? There are, what, uh, 30 people here, something like that? 20 or 30? Most of you pay five pounds on the door, which means that 100 to 150 pounds has come in. If student groups ask for two or three pounds on the door, paying speakers starts to become relatively easy to imagine. Um, and I think that if that becomes the norm, then we'll have a much more diverse and much more um, useful speaking community in secularism. Um, and one which is also less dominated by academics. Um, one piece of advice that I have tended to give here, um, student groups often find it difficult to raise the amount of funds that they need to to do that. Um, a starting point can be to raise enough to pay half your speakers, right? And then tell them when you invite them, well, we only have enough to give a fee to half our people. If you're relatively well off, would you consider waiving it? Most will, particularly people who are already stably employed, who are well off, who don't need the money. If they understand that it's going to go to something who needs it more than they do. Um, I think negotiating over fees actually is a mistake, right? Because once you start to have higher and lower amounts that are paid to individual speakers, there becomes a race to the bottom. Right? There becomes a pressure to work for less in order to get the booking. Right? You work for less, but you do more work. And that drives wages down. And that makes the problem worse. Um, okay. Not so much the case with uh, writing, incidentally. Uh, people who run magazines, people who um, I'm in publication. Um, I've known people who've uh, written for magazines like The Skeptic and felt guilty about getting a writer's fee for their article. Like wanted to turn it down because they feel that they're a professor or a lawyer and they don't need the money. That's a mistake because publication is generally for profit. And if you don't take the fee, the chance is that it's not going to go to someone worse off than you. It's just going to go into the pockets of the publication. Um, 
and then that's going to drive things down again. Right? Editors are just going to take articles from people who don't have a problem with them for free. Then it's going to become harder to ask for pay. Okay. Um, one point that I want to be very, very, if not severe, then emphatic about, and I'm speaking here to organisations like the BHA, uh, not so much the NSS, I think, but um, in America, things like James Manley's Foundation, the American Humanist Association, Center for Inquiry, all those big um, national groups. Pay your interns. Pay your interns, pay your interns, pay your interns, pay your interns. If there was one point that I could drive home with incredible emphasis in this talk, it would be that. Um, those who are not aware of this problem, um, there's become an increasing um, tendency in the last decade or possibly more for um, companies like um, banks and media companies to take graduates or young people and have them work in the office for something like three months, say, or even six months, for nothing, right? In order to progress in the organisation, in order to make contacts, in order to gain experience, so-called. Um, that means doing a full-time job for nothing. That is something that only very well-off people are able to do. If you live in London, uh, the cost of living takes you into many thousands over a few months, right? Um, the British Humanist Association, for a long time, um, I'm told that it continues to do so, but I don't know, um, would recruit university students. Um, they did this until only a couple of years back, uh, maybe ongoing, um, and asked them to work in their office five days a week, nine to five, for several months, unpaid. Um, this is actually quite a common practice. There are all kinds of groups um, who do it in America. And it also has um, a more informal manifestation, which is organisations saying on their website, come and volunteer for us. We have a volunteer position that will last three months and will work all day every day. But that's not volunteering. That's a job. You need to pay people for that. Volunteering is giving up a Saturday at a local charity shop. Volunteering is making a cup of tea for somebody in their office an evening or two a week. When you're doing the kind of work, and this is frequently the case, that people who are employed will be doing, you need to be waged, right? These are the kind of internships or volunteer opportunities that often have a very profound effect on who ends up being the next leader in atheism. Uh, the British Humanist Association, for example, has at least one person on their staff, possibly more, uh, who was employed after doing an internship. Uh, I think maybe the Rationalist Association does as well, but I'm not sure about that. When the people who become the figureheads and the leaders in secularism are people who did that for doing months and months of unpaid work because they could afford to do it for free, that means that the well-off people in atheism are the people who run the show and will continue to in the future. And that means that people who are on the economic edge will be forgotten about, who won't be able to become important, and also whose concerns will be overlooked because they're not the concerns of the people running the organisations. <clears throat> I should stress at this point that although charities, many of the organisations that do this, um, have the budgets to pay people, right? Uh, national minimum wage for a three-month period is something like £3,000 or slightly more. These are organisations that pay their leaders fifty or £60,000. Right, that have budgets that run into seven figures. Um, many will insist on being criticised over this, that 
actually we're a charity, we just couldn't afford it. Well, if you have the money to pay that to your bosses, you have the money to give a decent wage to the people you boss. Right? This is not just an abstract issue, this is about the future of the secularist and who gets to take hold of it. Um, it is only ethical leadership to make sure that people are not being exploited. On a similar point, uh, there are a lot of graphic design competitions that I see going around and they are something that we need to stop. Um, for example, I think it was Centre for Inquiry in the UK who um, held a logo design contest a few years ago. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Stephen Law, but um, said on their website, come and design a logo for us. Uh, we'll give you £50 in free membership for a year or something like that. Um, they didn't get any good submissions for the contest because people who are good artists don't work for nothing. Um, and in fact, asking that the people who do this kind of creative work in secularism uh, do it on the off chance that they may win some money, right? Uh, in all cases, but one that they do it for absolutely nothing, means that secular artists, secular designers, creatives in atheism aren't supportive. Um, which may have something to do with the fact that when we see things like atheist billboards on the sides of roads, they always look bloody horrible. Uh, we are just not supporting the people that we need to. Um, Organisations need to find graphic designers and artists and people like that. Pay them good market rates and support their work. That is how we become a more just movement. On a similar point about hiring and recruitment, um, it is not uncommon to see organisations list jobs like senior campaigner or um, head of human resources, clerical jobs, activist jobs, important things, and specify the need for a degree. How many people said they went to university? Hand up. Uh, so a dozen or more. Um, for how many of you was the academic stuff that you did during your degree necessary or relevant to the jobs you did later on? About half of you? Kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I know at least one person who is uh, a campaigner at a major skeptical organisation in the States who, although her bosses are very sympathetic, has a continual anxiety uh, about the fact that she doesn't actually have a degree getting out. Right? Worries that that might destabilise her career. Um, I know significantly more people um, who do have a degree, but it's not relevant to the work they do at all. Right? People who have degrees in things like computer science or maths and work as secular lobbyists. Um, actually, I know that some of them went into that kind of campaign because they didn't want to stay in academia. Um, education, again, is a commodity. It costs 36 pounds or actually more for a degree here now, um, and that's quite fortunate. Um, and when we only advertise jobs for graduates that could be done by anybody, we mean that we're excluding for no reason people who actually could be very good. Right? We're excluding the people who weren't able to pay huge amounts of money for education. Um, and that makes us more narrow. Um, a few more slightly specific tips. Organisations need to stop hiring specifically through graduate recruiters. We need to have a more open hiring process. Uh, we need to stop saying degrees are needed when they're not. And one thing that seems to have been successful is to say actually in job advertisements, we welcome applications from people who didn't get to university. Um, finally, I've noticed there is a tendency for national groups, but also things like uh, organisations a bit like this one, humanist groups and villages, things like that. Um, 
to be very, very keen on working with student groups um, and working with young people. Um, because, and perhaps some of you will identify with this sentiment, they find it quite refreshing to have somebody working with them who's under 50. Um, and student atheists tend to have a reputation or, um, or tend to be celebrated as being, in quotes, the feature of our movement. Um, some people feel that that is a slightly um, insulting moniker because we're the president of the movement as well. But it also needs to be remembered that not all young people and not all young atheists are students. Right? When we're looking for young atheists to work with, or to hire, or to promote, we need to look outside of universities. Universities are expensive, the education is a commodity. Um, campuses, I know more than most, are battlegrounds. There are huge amounts of fundamentalism going on there, huge amounts of religious censorship. I'm sure everybody in the room has heard about that. Um, and having started as the coordinator of an atheist student group, I don't underestimate for a moment that um, there's a concern there. But the net needs to be cast more widely. Um, there are issues that are common, I think, to young atheists, whether we go to university or not. Issues about tension with family, for example, um, or about bullying in schools uh, by religious people. You think that that doesn't go on in a country like Britain, and uh, actually it does, particularly in ethnic minority communities, and a lot of that. Um, and also just the question of what secularism will be like in 50 years' time, when Richard Dawkins isn't here anymore. Um, so I think that we need to encourage people who are my kind of age, um, but who haven't got the academic background many of us have, um, to engage more. I think it's fine to say that student atheists are the future of our movement if you're all right having a future where everybody paid £36,000. But that's not the kind of future I want. Um, you're also fairly unlikely to find people paying that kind of money who have fled from cults, for example, um, or who've been cut off by religious family members, or who rely on churches, as my mum and I did, um, for practical and financial and social support. Um, so I think perhaps the way to counteract this is to build more links with secondary schools as well as universities. Um, I think it's to give concessions, discount tickets, that kind of thing, uh, to people who are under 25, and not specifically to students. I think it's to raise scholarships for people. There's a group uh, in Los Angeles called Acceptics LA, um, whose major piece of work was to create education scholarships um, for young people from deprived backgrounds in their area. Um, and also, I think, just to make non-students more visible um, when you're a young person group, or if you're a student group, to engage more with people outside of academia. Um, I want to say at this point that some of the things that I've said are <coughs> ambitious, like the idea of raising hundreds of pounds to pay speakers, the idea of raising large amounts of money to pay interns, or to pay for childcare. These are things that secularism needs to do. If we continue to be a middle class or an economically fortunate or an upper class movement or community or whatever we are, uh, we will go nowhere in the next years or decades. Um, we will continue to be, while a very strong community, one which is somewhat socially restricted, right? one that doesn't have a lot of outreach uh, to people who are worried that they're going to be evicted by their landlords, people who are starving, people who need to be helped in the way that the church is helping now. And the only way that we can grow is if we become more conscious about um, 
opening doors in this way. So, an admission that things are difficult, but also an encouragement to take the bull by the horns. Um, finally, if anybody wants to contact me, uh, you can see my blog URL at the top uh, and my email address uh, just there. Okay, thank you very much. sturdy and established and have lots of people coming to you, 
then putting on that big event would actually mean that most of the publicity goes to the big national group who is helping you do it. So the capacity for growth for you is not particularly huge. What I'd like to see is medium-sized groups, so not sort of huge national behemoths like the NSS, for example, but perhaps groups kind of the size of Conway Hall, the size of Sheffield Humanist, or some of the more kind of established ones, Leicester Secular Society as well, um, being more prepared to give financial aid to smaller groups right, and to kind of nurture them and allow that to happen. Because I think medium-sized and smaller groups um, need to develop more. I think you're right about that um, in a general sense, um, although many are, I can't describe. Um, so more instrumental. Yeah. No. Hello. They had sort of spin-offs um, with atheist buses around the world. The German ones were done by um, the Um There were also others. Uh, I'm not enormously of they. I think there's one called Verband der Konfessionslosen, which is uh, sort of Germany-wide and maybe Austria as well. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a pretty kind of um, healthy scene. Um, also, all the kind of modern variations like skeptics and pub. I'm not sure if Berlin has a Sunday assembly yet. Um, I hope not. You speak German? Uh, yes, I have a degree. I'm a, a little stronger written than I am spoken. But I get by. Okay. Uh, I think you you mentioned the yeah. Sunday assembly several times. How much do they charge? For, for the session. I'm sorry, for. How much, do they, how much do you have to pay to go to one of those? Oh, you don't. Right, it's just where you walk in. Are you sure? Uh, uh, there are they donations. They send them. Yeah, it's, it's like a church, there are buckets to go. Um, I went back in January uh, and um, huge buckets sort of full of five pound notes, I was quite jealous. Um, I think there is actually an issue about the Sunday Assembly. I'm not sure where all the donations go. I know that they don't pay their musicians, which seems to me questionable because traditionally churches have been. You know, if you're a musician or if you're an artist more broadly, churches have historically been the big source of money, right? If you want to do a gig that gets you by for the rest of the month, you go to a wedding or a service and you play an organ or whatever. Um, I think if we're going to sort of recreate the church model as the Sunday Assembly does, we can't not pay musicians. Um, so I do have a bit of a concern about that, but I might be wrong about that setup. Yes, well, the, the people who play at the concerts our concerts are, of course, paid. Yes. They always have good. Yes. Can I, can I just go back to what you said? The other people who come here once a month, the School of Life, they do charge quite a lot. Yes, 12 uh, That would not surprise me. They were set up by Alan de Bocken, uh, who I don't know how to get on, um, who I think 
just uh, forked out a million of his personal money into setting it up because he's Swiss and he's wealthy. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know very much about them, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were more costly and more um, deep-pocketed than some of those have been. Right. Yes. Yeah, um, I agree with many specific points that you made, but I won't waste time on them at the moment. No, don't. Um, as far as this room is concerned, I felt that you were a bit man of repose in the sense that I don't feel, I'm touched by the hands that went up, but I don't feel that poor people are, are unrepresented here by any means. I mean, the, pro the problem looking looking at this room, to me, is not is not that, but, but young people not being represented. And the other, the other point, um, the other point that occurs to me is that you keep talking about humanism and atheism and secularism, so they're all interchangeable. And I, I just a serious doubt about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I only refer to them that way because there is a loosely connected network of different organisations that campaign on those different issues. Um, in a philosophical sense, that distinction is one I'm happy to surrender, but there's the secular society, there's the humanist association, now all doing similar and related things. Well, it, it might be interesting if you were to tell us your view, whatever it is, on the word humanism. Only, only we'll say is that in schools, uh, they've sort of used, they've adopted that word as the, the name for the atheist secularist bit, if you like. And because it's there on their timetable, it's difficult to uh, get rid of it or find an alternative, like atheism sounds too provocative. Um, so what's your views on all that? I don't, I don't want to delve into it too much. Okay. Um, I, I personally see myself as a humanist. Um, if other people do, I'm fine with that, each to their own. Um, when that comes to things like schools teaching, I have a bit more reservation, but I, I think that's probably beyond the scope of this talk. Um, as far as this room, um, you're right, I have actually noticed that I'm a little bit younger than most people here. Um, but I don't think that we should ignore the fact that, um, and for one thing, groups that tend to be older tend to be people who have things like pensions or own property or are otherwise relatively independent financially. Um, but perhaps there's a frame of reference issue. Um, I think the people I'm really interested in reaching out to are the people who are actually not financially safe. People for whom homelessness would be an issue, people for whom unemployment might be an issue. Um, so as far as that, I think, I, I stand by what I've said, pretty much. Okay. Uh, all right, Derek, yeah. Um, thank you for your uh, presentation, but I would focus uh, the attention on the word poor. Why are people poor? So you've got to be careful about the word poor. Just to finish off with, 
Um, and I don't really agree with the idea personally that as soon as you have any amount of money on the door, right, or any amount for tickets, um, you're doing something wrong. Right? It's a small amount that everybody pays that can stack up. Um, again, my experience is more with student groups, so I can't really discuss specifics. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm ready to pay that. Sorry? Some must pay that. Yeah. Um, no matter what group you I'm not the person really to answer that question. But I think that the money is out there and we can find it. Um, but it will be hard. I'm not going to shoot you at that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. Thank you. You've, um, you've described how young people don't choose their upbringing, whether it's wealthy or poor, whether it's religious or non-religious. And you've also described how there's more opportunities for people with privileged upbringing to have exposure to uh, different types of thinking, atheistic, secular thinking. So in your experience, both your personal experience and those of your friends, are there different pathways from a religious upbringing to that take people away from their faith towards secularism or humanism that, that are at play within people in privileged upbringings? Um, I think that's probably true. I think the opposite is also true to an extent. Though. I think there are factors which, when people rely on things like financial help from religious groups, um, actually keep them wedded and knitted into that group more, and it's difficult to leave. Um, I think actually there's a particular I don't want to speak broadly about humanists, um, but I think a lot of people who are less fiery atheists or what have you um, often come from families that have been secular or humanist or whatever for many decades and generations before and had a very comfy secular upbringing. Um, people like me who had a comparatively devout um, childhood and starting life um, often tend to be a little bit more confrontational, or at least that's my point of view. Um, and I think that, yeah, probably income does have some relevance there. Um, I think, though, that precisely because that kind of dependence keeps a lot of poor people um, sort of tied to churches, as it were, that once those of them leave who do, um, we tend to be particularly fire-breathing because there's a kind of um, exploitation there or at least um, dependency that I think people who grow up secular and well-off don't often see, right? I think there's a point where um, it's perhaps worth mentioning that when I was sort of five or six or seven, my mum went through a phase of being very, very kind of fundagelical, evangelical sort of thing. She had kind of demon possession beliefs, things that were really very far out. Um, and a lot of that came from people who she'd met through other members of her church through a kind of social network, right? There were people who were very extreme and she kind of fell in with them for a time. Um, and I think that tends to happen when you're in that kind of position in your religious communities your whole life. So, yeah, in answer to your question, I think it goes one way or the other, but can be quite extreme. You either become very, very religious or you break out of it and, and kind of rage against God for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, I'm looking for another question from one of the female half of the audience. 
not quite half. The owners is. already had a go, but there must be someone else. Females? Yeah. Why? Well, I don't know. It's just we're told at the AGM that this is male-dominated, and therefore we're meant to do something about it. However, let's not. There's someone at the back who wants to get. Yeah. Yes. Um, one of the other respondents mentioned this, but um, when I saw the theme of this talk, I thought it was nonsense. And um, having heard the talk, I'm not very much swayed. Most of the people in this uh, group are left wing, and there's a strong mood of um, political correctness. So saying that the proletariat don't support humanism, atheism, is, is just nonsense. Um, what I would say, and to frame a question of this, is do you not think we should have more um, uh, identity and cohesion? Now, now, when the philosophy people come up, I think it's once a year, uh, there is this feeling of identity because there are people animated and interested and buzzing about attending talks and discussions, and there's a, a feeling of identity. We are philosophers, not religionists, and um, perhaps this could be complemented by other days like this on perhaps a lesser scale. But I mean, to say that, uh, that, that, that humanism is for the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie or people with money, I think it's absolute nonsense, really. Yes, that would have been nonsense had I said it. Um, <laughs> my argument is not actually that there's any sort of philosophical problem being non-religious in any form, um, which kind of prevents that from um, happening for people who aren't well off. Um, I think arguments to that, um, there was a piece in uh, one of the newspapers a while back that, yeah, I mentioned it, just said that atheism is a sort of barren philosophy and poor people don't feel supported by it. Um, well, I agree, that's nonsense. Um, the issue is not actually that there aren't poor unbelievers, to use a very general term. It's about the way that Secular organisations can sometimes exclude people. Right? It doesn't cost anything to not believe in God or to dislike religion, but it can cost quite a lot to get to an atheist conference. Right? It can cost a lot to find a community like this. It can cost a lot to be able to advance and have a career in secular activism. So it's really about practice more than theory, uh, would be my response. Yeah, okay. Fiona? Yes, Fiona. sort of atheism versus secularism versus all those isms. Um, I, I think there's some conflict within the NSS about that. In fact, I know there is because I'm colleagues with some of the people who are like, we're, no, there is. Well, you talk to Terry Sanderson and he'll tell you that he is indifferent about 
yeah, but he has opponents. Um, anyway, that's, I'm not on the NSS staff, like that's not my um, argument. Um, for the purposes of this discussion, um, I'm happy to just use a very broad definition and say skepticism, atheism, secularism, whatever, because they tend to be saying the similar people who go to different groups, whatever. Um, as far as the necessity of finding atheist groups specifically rather than just um, being out and about, as it were, um, for one thing, I know that a lot of people who, like me, have come from very profoundly religious backgrounds um, rely on having a kind of support network of people who've left, right? Because there are things that simply going to the Natural History Museum doesn't really answer. Like, there are times when um, I mentioned my mum's period thinking that the house was possessed by demons and things like that. There are experiences there that I want to vent about and kind of recover from, as it were, um, with people who've had the same sorts of upbringings. Um, and also I think there's some use just in having um, forums where non-religious people can um, bounce ideas about, to use a whole yucky metaphor. Um, so, yeah, I think we have a distinct use. Just to clear up about the NSS. <laughs> Go on. I mean, traditionally they were also atheist and secular. But at the last AGM, there was a definite decision, which I opposed, that they would drop any hint of being atheist. They are simply campaigning to make Britain a secular state. That's all they want to do. They're not interested in admitting they might be atheists on the grounds that will embarrass them in conversations in Europe and all sorts of other reasons. So, if you are an atheist, don't join the NSS. <laughs> Just uh, to undermine that slightly, I think it's still the case that if you put atheism.org.uk into an internet uh, search engine, you will get the NSS website. Possibly. Yeah, a bit yeah. embarrassing. Okay. Um, now, we're virtually out of time, but, uh, yeah, you had a question, and then... Suppose that the number of people joining uh, secular groups did substantially increase. What benefit, if any, would the population in general acquire from such a change? I mean, I'm thinking this question with should we as um, secular people be striving to make changes in the way this society <coughs> this is society behaves. Did I have any national objectives? Oh, national and beyond, I think. I mean, um, on the level of fear of mentioning it again, the NSS and similar groups doing the same kind of work, all sorts of church and state issues in the UK. I mean, faith schools, uh, legal exemptions for religious groups, all of that kind of thing. Um, also, to go out on a limb here, um, I am of the slightly more inflammatory opinion that less religious belief is also good. All right. I mean, I think, uh, well, we don't really have time to get into the whole is religion harmful discussion, um, but yeah, it is. <laughs>
against faith schools, against female genital mutilation, against Sharia law, against all the things that we feel strongly against. And the reason that they have cut atheism out of their constitution, it's not that most of them are not atheists, we're nearly all atheists. It's because having two different things is less, um, it, it, it doesn't work really. You have, if you're a campaigning organization, you really need a single issue. And the single issue is that religion should not impose on the rest of us who are not religious. Okay, you're um, I, I think the, the NSS, although it's, um, it doesn't have premises, it doesn't have uh, a, a large membership, really, but it is the important organisation. I was horrified to learn that the BHA no longer opposes faith schools, as they now call them. They're really sectarian schools dividing children according to the religion of their parents. The BHA now has a campaign for inclusive admissions to schools, whether they're religious or not. So they think it's, they're, they're in, in um, cahoots now, but they're not a religious organization on this. And so they have given up opposing um, sectarian schools. The NSS publishes every week news like for people like me that don't have the internet. We rely on getting the printout every week and it's full of very important campaigning news. Right, okay. Yes, just to clarify, uh, what I meant was don't join the NSS if atheism and atheist type philosophy is your main interest. You're quite right, Barbara, that all the other aspects of its campaigning are very important. Sorry, Alex, to interrupt. Now, uh, uh, you were looking for a lady. I've left my jacket home, so if there's a question, you can call the lady. Who's that? This lady here. No, he is not a lady. You've left a glass at home as well. Um, Okay, sorry, you have a question. He still has a question. Well, hold on, they've got to put their hand up. Your, your turn. I just thought, the point that Fiona made about there are many other organisations uh, that people can go to, and if, if atheists, humanists, whatever, go to them, and mix with other people, that's a way of spreading the word, which is very good. But I was struck that you, you referred to uh, the alternative to Avantgarde's anonymous Save Our Sobriety. Save Our Sobriety. Secular Organisations for Sobriety? Yes, yeah. SOS. And they actually gave us a talk in this organisation mm. in the mid 1990s. Uh, and they're obviously very good. Uh, they, they offer help to alcoholics, which is good for. For religious people, just as good for religious people, it just is, doesn't have the problem that alcoholics and others have for non-religious people. But they don't. I mean, when I last checked a few years ago, I think they had one group in in Kilburn and just one organizer. And I think perhaps a reason why, which is a problem for us as well, is that religions have demand loyalty. You've got to come to church, and and 
our cults are known as the narcotics anonymous, demand the loyalty of their members. They say, you've got to follow our, our thing, and then you've got to come back and help us. Whereas, Save Our Separacy just says, well, find your, we'll help you find a way of helping yourself, and then if the best way is to go away and not join us, that's good for you. You, you succeeded, but you've not helped the organisation. And in a sense, if we say to people, you don't need to follow God, just live your life and do good, it doesn't mean that you've got to come to meetings. And that's a, a part of why we, we don't have big meetings, because actually when we're good atheists, we go out and, and help people other than just come and self-indulge at these meetings. Right. Speak for yourself, I stay at home and think about God. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm so pessimistic, though, because I think in the last 10 years, um, atheism or secularism, whatever is a public theme, um, has become a lot more prominent than it was. And I think people are engaging with the kind of community aspect of it more now than they did for a while. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned. Now, did you have a question? Yeah. You do? Okay. Th this will be our last question. Yeah. I, I've got one. Yours is a joke. Right. Um, mine's more of a general question. So, uh, Sorry, where are you? He's over there. Over here. Oh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned the, so you talked about the idea of uh, sort of actively doing things to try and target uh, people who are poor. Um, and one alternative to that might actually be, you know, if there's a limited amount of time and resources that people have, uh, maybe spending efforts are actually help people lift, lift themselves out of uh, economic um, uh, problems. Do you think there's, uh, there's benefit uh, in that? Ultimately, it means that you maintain the status quo of only having sort of well-off people uh, belonging to such groups, but at least you sort of help people along in that way as well. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what you're suggesting, though. Uh, when you say help them lift themselves out of it, like in what form? Uh, I, I, I'm not in, in, entirely sure, but um, I don't know, just to sort of think like, you know, outreach programs to help, to help people to give them uh, advice or direction that they can go in that kind of thing. Right, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, that actually is why I brought up secular organisations for society, because I think that substance abuse is something which, as well as being hijacked by. Um, religious philosophies or groups a lot of the time is something that tends to have a profound impact on people who are economically at the bottom. Right? Either it causes them to go financially off the rails or they already were and it um, makes things worse. Um, I, I will say um, this is something I know that various Sunday assemblies do, um, that kind of self-help advice here is how to sort your life out. I'm not going to write it off completely, but I think I am generally a little bit suspicious of the self-help philosophy. Um, I remember uh, back when I was a believer, um, there's a maxim that goes around between some Christians, God helps those who help themselves. You know, so, hey, don't keep asking for food from the church, go and help yourself. I sort of think we need to feed people who don't have any food, whether they can fix it themselves or not. Um, as far as non-religious organising, um, I think the point is it should fall to us, actually, um, to break the dependency and the hold the churches have on a lot of people. 
who want to leave, right? I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard about people or even heard from people um, who have simply been stuck in their church because if they leave, who will come and look after their kids on Tuesday nights, right, or whatever else. Um, and I don't think it's simply um, a kind of abstract matter of doing the right thing, so it is that. From a very cold-blooded Machiavellian point of view, um, those are the people that secularism is missing out on, right? Those are the people who should be swelling our ranks and who we should be giving a safe place to land. And they're lost to us currently. Um, rescuing them, or at least doing more to help, um, may well require resources and time and be challenging. Um, again, I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but we can do it, and there are precedents of people doing it. Um, I know a friend who runs a humanist community that has um, soup kitchens, that has um, outreach for homeless people and so on. Um, I think some of those people have now joined and become members. Um, so, again, it's difficult, but these things are challenges that we should rise to. Okay, thanks very much. I, um, Am I going to do that? Yeah, go on then. Oh, yeah. So I think the modern society is